For whatever subconscious reason that I care not to evaluate here, I went with the unorthodox position of claiming Zapruder's footage of the JFK assassination was a royal hoax before ever showing a shred of evidence for it. Historical proof of my methodology can be found in the last episode. An entire week has gone by and still I make no apologies. If my work frustrates or bores you, then I highly suggest doing your own research. Regardless, here we are. Welcome. Also, as a matter of public policy, I do not respond to shrink questions. In case you were wondering, cosmology is not a couch for me to recline on while you pull out a monocle and a notebook and attempt to assign my pedigree of insanity. We have already established the fact, and this is a matter of public record, that Agent Abraham Zerpruder, the man who gave us one of the most important film documentations of the 20th century, was indeed a 33-degree Freemason. That's a deal-breaker. Sorry, whatever he has to show us is a no-go. I could care less about his Zionist or Langley ties at this point. The Zapruder film was nothing more or less than a magical ceremony. Agent Zapruder's movie has been called the most important 26 seconds of film in history. The only reason we consider it as such is because spook communities and the media tell us it is. Who do you think runs the Gallup polls? Spooks do. It is spooks who create our perceived reality and then spooks who inform our opinions about it. Since we're on the subject of important 20th century film documentation, I'm reminded of the original Apollo 11 moon landing hoax footage, which NASA admittedly recorded over. You would think the other most important film footage of the 20th century, perhaps all of human history, would be slightly more worth preserving than Archie Bunker's chair. But no, I can only assume somebody wanted to record the Super Bowl, and it was either that or Werner Von Braun's wedding video. I don't know. You tell me. Now that we have thoroughly established that spooks have their hand in every element of the Kennedy assassination, I should pause here and remind my reader that spooks have been making themselves known to me in recent months, and in a number of ways. It is one of the very reasons I closed my Facebook account in April of 2020. Spooks. I do understand that this is a podcast, but you will also want to note that I am reading from an article. You will therefore not be able to see the many images that I have projected. This may prove to be a problem. I will do my best to describe to you the pictures, and you will have to use your imagination. The above screenshot just arrived in my mailbox the other day, and it's not the first. Freemasons and the quote-unquote illuminated from the local lodge often like to let me know they're keeping an eye on me as in VI, one ring to rule them all, that sort of thing. I figure it's their way of reminding me that my special interests are nobody's business but their own. Also, it means I'm doing something right. Pulling back curtains. I never trust tapestries or a conveniently hung drape. For the record, the picture I am trying to describe is a screenshot of Illuminati Kenya, an online account that is now subscribing to The Unexpected Cosmology. Illuminati Kenya. Their picture shows the square and the compass, and my discoveries are nobody's business, especially not my own. This is probably a good place to remind everyone that I love my family, am not on psychotropic drugs, and have never once thought about committing suicide. That is all for now. This episode is brought to you by my commercial sponsor, Bosco Chocolate Flavored Syrup. Kids, tell your mom to buy Bosco today. 
And now we are on the subject of the Zapruder film. So let us begin. The Unexpected Cosmology, Episode 14. The JFK assassination was a hoax. Frame 313 exposed. The Zapruder film consists of only 486 frames. This amounts to a running time of precisely 28 seconds. President Kennedy does not enter the stage for the first third of the picture. And it is there where we encounter a serious problem. If you were born at any time during the 20th century, then you've likely seen the Zapruder film a hundred times already. That and other momentous pieces of fiction like NASA, scratch that, Star Wars. Regardless, I highly suggest you give it another review while listening to this episode. It may help to open your eyes to a far greater number of anomalies than is being discussed here. There are so many, I can't cover them all. The first thing you should notice is that Zapruder abruptly cuts filming at frame 132, or so we're led to believe. This is a problem because Zapruder's 8mm Bill and Howell displayed no fade in exposure while it slowed down and then started back up again. Kids, this is before digital technology. You don't simply turn a reel of film off and on again without a slight hiccup in the presentation. That is, unless you want to take scissors to the reel and make an edit. Otherwise, the first two or three frames after 132 should be blotchy due to a heavier exposure to light until the film corrects its speed. And yet, there's no apparent fade out as is often customary when releasing or pressing the shutter button on the camera. If I'm being repetitive, it's because the jump from frames 132 to 133 should immediately tell us something. Zapruder did not start filming again at frame 133. Seriously, if you haven't already, Pause this episode now and view the Zapruder film again. Once you see what I'm talking about, you can't unsee it. But I've only just begun. We can know for certain that somebody took a schnip to the film because a good deal of time is missing from the final cut, an estimated 30 seconds in total. How do we know this? We see three police motorcycles round the corner from North Houston to Elm Street and then quite suddenly, the president's Lincoln convertible appears out of nowhere. <laughs> How adorable. Kennedy was killed in a Lincoln. And as we all hopefully know by now, Lincoln's assassination was another hoax. Oh darn, I haven't covered that yet, have I? We'll save that for another episode. The only thing more obvious in the Kennedy hoax would be a nod to Ford's theater. Oh wait, <laughs> the Lincoln was a Ford. Again, adorable. Within that 30 seconds of missing time, the motorcade's lead car, an unmarked white four-door Ford Mercury sedan, which included Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry, Dallas County Sheriff Bill Decker, and Agent Four Sorrells, remember Agent Sorrells? Uh-huh. Has completely rounded the corner and passed Zapruder by. It makes absolutely no sense that Zapruder would show up to film the Kennedys stop filming the very moment the lead motorcycles and cars round the corner only to presume work again. And remember, had he stopped the film, then several frames on either side of 132 and 133 would be blotchy. But that's not even the abnormality that I want you to focus in upon. There is no enthusiasm in the crowd. For nearly 200 frames, 
some three dozen people on the bottom of the frame or the north end of Elm Street remain perfectly motionless. And that doesn't even include the missing gap between frames 132 and 133. We are expected to believe that Zapruder shut his camera off at frame 132 and then started it up again at frame 133, some 30 seconds later, while the crowd remained standing frozen in time, completely motionless. Did you hear that right? They have come to see the president and there is no enthusiasm whatsoever. You may notice in the Zapruder film that various photographers are poised and ready for action on the south side of Elm, just across from the motionless crowd. Despite the fact that their pictures document a single frame, they seem to capture the motionless crowd looking far more jubilant and worse. The people within the ranks are poised in conflicting orders when compared to the Z film. Let me state this again. The photographs taken across the street of the people in the motionless crowd don't match up with the same order of people in the motionless crowd from the Zapruder film. There were several photos taken from the south side of Elm, and again, when compared with Zapruder, they all imagined various size crowds. Only the man with the construction helmet seemingly remains the same in each one, and he's been identified as an agent. Yeah, a creepy construction worker spook. If we were viewing a Hollywood production, we'd have a simple explanation for this. Multiple takes. A rotunda of walk-on actors. Post-production still frame that has been composited. But since we're not watching a Hollywood production, or so we keep telling ourselves, all we are left with is that uncomfortable sinking feeling and a pill bottle of cognitive dissonance. 32-year-old Jean Hill, aka Norman Jean, is dubbed the Lady in Red in the Zapruder film. She is seen standing nearly alone in Daly Plaza and had only recently separated from her husband, Bill Hill. They wouldn't divorce until August of the following year. We are told that Jean and her friend, 31-year-old Mary Mormon, who is seen holding the camera to her eye, traveled to Daly Plaza to nab a picture of Jean's latest boyfriend. Not the president, mind you, her latest boyfriend. Information on Jean's boyfriend is terribly difficult to come by. Apparently, he was a Dallas police motorcycle cop assigned to the motorcade. He is almost always mentioned in the press as the boyfriend. I found one source identifying him as J.B. Marshall, but that also may be a pseudonym. More than likely, he is a Freemason. Post-edit, every single cop present in that motorcade was a Freemason. That can only mean one thing. Her latest boyfriend was a Freemason. The strangest part has little to do with her initial backstory and everything to do with the fact that she and Mary Mormon are standing in Daly Plaza almost completely alone. Take a note of that. Watch the footage again and again if you have to. We shall return to that thought in a moment. Jean maintained until her dying day, and she testified to this from the very get-go, that she jumped out into the street the very moment the Lincoln passed and cried, Hey, Mr. President! Look over here. We want to take your picture. There is another glaring problem here because agents of Pruder never captured Jean Hill making any such notion towards the Lincoln. The curb looks to be a good 12 inches higher than the street. Such a leap would not go unnoticed. And yet, in the Pruder film, Jean is clearly shown some two feet from the curb. Perhaps you are beginning to see where I'm going with this. Either there were multiple takes 
and her best performance was not a part of the finished product, which would also explain the discrepancies among the motionless crowd, or we're simply dealing with a one-take crisis actor. I personally interviewed crisis actors after the 2007 Las Vegas shooting, and I can tell you that inconsistent crisis actors are a dime a dozen. This is partly due to the fact that they like to add their own little flair, a backstory if you will, to the narrative just to keep it organic and to make their part known. There is of course a third option. The Sapruder film was heavily doctored post-production. On November 22nd, Jean Hell gave a statement to the police where she stated, Mary Mormon started to take a picture. We were looking at the president and Jackie in the back seat. Just as the president looked up, two shots rang out and I saw the president grab his chest and fell forward across Jackie's lap. There was an instant pause between two shots and the motorcade seemingly halted for an instant. Three or four more shots rang out and the motorcade sped away. Jean repeated her account to the Warren Commission in 1964 and adamantly rejected their single gunman findings. Apparently, on the 22nd of November, 1963, Jean immediately ran to the grassy knoll where she saw a puff of smoke and a shadowy figure. I have chosen the word immediate, or else, why would she run? We have already heard Jean explain that she jumped into the street as the Lincoln passed and there is no recorded documentation of any such action. So, take note of her sprint towards the grassy knoll. The lady in red, still dressed for the part in 1992, rehearsed what she saw in the Beyond JFK documentary, wherein she said, It was right up there. The man was shooting from right just this side of that tree, that large tree, and that's where I saw the shot come from. You will tell me this is further proof that Norma Jean Hill was going up against the corrupt establishment which had hoped to steer the gullible public away from any notion of conspiracy. And yet, I have already explained in my last episode that the second shooter was another layer to the PSYOP, created by spooks in order to throw us off their scent. Remember, she's dating a Freemason. The Warren Commission was nothing more than a script, written and fleshed out by Freemasons. Entertainment for the Barracoon. This can only mean one thing. Agent Zapruder was a 33-degree Freemason, and Jean Hill was in on it. Remember, the only reason you know about the existence of a possible second shooter is because of Jean Hill. If the Warren Commission, which was made up of top-ranking Freemasons, the CIA director, and a future president, wanted to steer America away from pondering the possibility of a cover-up, why would they even ask the lady in red to testify? The answer is, they wouldn't. Contrarily, the CIA wanted America to theorize over the potential for conspiracy. That and the magic bullet theory created by 33-degree Freemason Arlen Specter was all a part of the PSYOP. Jean was simply keeping to their plot twist. As a crisis actor, Jean Hill is filled with colorful war stories. A Secret Service agent told her after the attack that another agent watching from the courthouse saw a bullet strike quote unquote, at my feet. Uh-huh, sure, Jean, we're listening. Also, according to the Wikipedia, Hill stated that after the firing stopped, she saw a white man wearing a brown overcoat and a hat running west away from the depository building in the direction of the railroad tracks. She has since stated when she saw a photo of Jack Ruby after his killing of Lee Harvey Oswald, she now believes he was the man she saw running. 
Ridiculous. We'll return to Norma Jean's claim in a moment. The woman in red furthermore stated that she received death threats and that the brake lines of her automobile were cut after the assassination. Hill apparently always thought of herself as a survivor after many of the other witnesses to the assassination died shortly after President Kennedy's death under what some considered to be mysterious circumstances. Okay, let's be clear. If the shadowy deep state wanted Gene Hill dead for outing their second shooter, then Gene Hill would be dead, plain and simple. The cutting of breaks sounds like the plot line to an episode of Superman, whereas George Reeves, who ironically died of mysterious causes, needs to save Jimmy Olsen from driving off a winding mountain cliffside. No, in reality, Jean Hill would be diagnosed as bipolar or perhaps a manic depressant. She'd take to the bottle, lose her career as a teacher to some scandal, and then jump off a bridge. While slowly killing her off with a daily dosage of poison, the CIA would sadistically give America reason to discredit her. As previously noted, some crisis actors like to dabble in the art of improv, and Jean Hill appears to be one of them. On November 7th, 2000, she died of complications due to a blood disease in Dallas, not the deep state. Do me a favor and commit yourself to an internet search of pictures taken in the seconds directly after the Kennedy assassination in Daly Plaza. If you do so, you will immediately know what I'm talking about. Look how few people witnessed the actual shooting at Daly Plaza. There's what, a dozen of them? They had positioned themselves there knowing it would make the perfect photograph of John and Jackie Kennedy. And it was. Why did nobody else but Zapruder and a handful of witnesses have the same idea? Nowadays, crisis actors are a dime a dozen. They'll rear you in the craft and then bus you out to the event for free. Enjoy the performance until the lights go down and it's your cue to die. That sort of thing. We're talking about the chance of a lifetime to stand several feet away from the president, John F. Kennedy. And what better place to peer over one's shoulder, once the curb had filled with too many bystanders to number, than the grassy knoll. It makes for natural auditorium seating. Dallas saw a high of 70 degrees Fahrenheit that day. Certainly not too hot. Humidity wasn't an issue. Where are all the people? There should be hundreds filling this one print alone. Even President James Buchanan would have a larger turnout. Look, there's Jean Hill in her red coat, positioned next to Mary Mormon, precisely where they were last seen in the Zapruder film. At what point did she chase after the second shooter? Is that the mysterious babushka lady standing stage left? I believe so. It's like everyone is waiting their turn, having already rehearsed their part, and only America is not in on it. Where did Agent Zapruder go? You'd think if the press and the police wanted to speak with anyone, it was the guy holding the movie camera. Oh, that's right. He ran off the very second he finished with his movie project, right alongside the fat man leaving the book depository building and the second shooter. Had he stuck around to film another moment, as any curious person with an 8mm logically would, everything he and others had planned so long for might have been compromised. Look across the street. Notice the family ducking for cover. And photograph after photograph, there they are again, Bill and Gail Newman still poised in position while Life Magazine, wink wink, stands around capturing their drama for the nation. They just sit there, click click click, don't move until the photographers have captured all the crisis actors. Oh wait, 
There is another close-up, courtesy of photographer Frank Cancellaire. That's another photo search you want to take a look at, the photograph of Frank Cancellaire. How long do you suppose the Newmans remained ducking for cover while the media stood around photographing them? And just as importantly, why? We're supposedly dealing with journalistic integrity. Meanwhile, on Elm Street, in Frank Cancellaire's photo, we can see cowboys going on a joyride. And if I'm not mistaken, Norma Jean Hill is no longer sitting. That looks to be the legs of the lady in red and perhaps the babushka lady standing around comparing notes, getting their stories straight. Oh look, another photograph. And there the photographers go running off for their next shot while the Newmans remain poised in position, waiting to be cleared by the director. This may be a good time to look into another anomaly. We are on frame 403. Again, feel free to pause here and look up frame 403. As you can tell, we're dealing once again with composite images. If you look to the far right, you will see what happens to be an inhuman looking shapeshifter. Nothing is natural about the way he lumbers across the screen like a cartoon. I wish I could tell you they just had to throw that in there, give us a glimpse of the evil workings behind the scenes, but the far more likelier explanation is that we're dealing with a composite artifact, mutated with the merging together of multiple film sources. In other words, multiple takes. Kind of like how Jean Hill's narrative, where she stepped off the curb, didn't make the final cut. There is much else to see in the single frame. Here we also find that the parked automobiles beyond Daly Plaza will change their appearance. Look to the lamppost and then beyond the lamppost to the elongated truck. Notice how nothing and nobody can be seen in the back of that truck. Now, let's turn back to the Newman family and another Frank Cancellaire original. If you are simply listening and not reading along with the article, you will have to use your imagination. Here we can clearly see a man kneeling in the pickup truck, which has now been shortened. There is an item to his left. Neither appear in Zapruder's film. The Cancellaire photo is an estimated 20 seconds after Z film frame 313. Seriously, Abraham Zapruder split that quickly? Wow. Speaking of which, we arrive now at frame 313. This is the precise moment when Kennedy's head explodes like a firecracker. The infamous image would remain withheld from all public releases of the film until 1975, when it was finally shown for the first time on reporter Geraldo Rivera's television show, Good Night America. Rivera is a spook. I had asked you to take note of the fact that Jean Hill insisted until her dying day that she stepped out into the street while the Lincoln convertible passed. In frame 313, notice how Jean's shadow is bent out of shape. This could be due to the fact that her curbside narrative is legitimate, assuming we are not looking at the composite of multiple takes, and her position has been altered, only slightly. This is also the precise moment when Jean is said to have looked into the direction of the Texas School Book Depository and saw Jack Ruby making his getaway. How a fat man could make it down six flights of stairs after making his kill shot within the span of a few seconds is beyond me. Not even John Wilkes Booth could accomplish that task. Her story seems less and less likely with every telling. Before we move on to Kennedy's head wound, via frame 313, let's address the running woman seen only one frame earlier in 312. The lampposts in Daly Plaza are precisely 14 feet tall. An analysis of the photo pins the running woman as somewhere in the range of 7 
feet tall. Before you conclude that we've spotted yet another giant on the loose, I assure you the woman was interviewed in person and her interviewers concluded she was in reality only five feet tall. If this confuses you, then just rest assured this is yet another problem to the official narrative which insists that Zapruder's film was in no way altered. The next series of frames reveals a massive exit wound upon Kennedy's right temple and forehead. There is a big blob where his skull once was, more like a glob, Vaseline perhaps? As the film progresses, his wound morphs. Remember the villain in Terminator 2, Judgment Day? I do too. It changes shapes as he falls into his wife's lap. In fact, his entire forehead is shown to be missing. Nothing but a stump of head. If you play the footage slowly, the head wound constantly changes shape. According to this frame, we can see right through his skull. Autopsy photos clearly show that the president's face was undamaged. The Zapruder film disagrees with all other evidence. Strange, since convincing America that Kennedy had been assassinated was never a problem. Had Walter Cronkite simply told America their president was dead, then they would have believed him. If Kennedy truly was shot in Dallas, Texas, and somebody happened to be filming it, then why not show the unaltered footage? It's not like Zapruder was facing in the direction of the book depository building on the grassy knoll, suspected location of the first and second shooters. Post-production editors simply gave Kennedy an, an impossible head wound. The more probable explanation is that Kennedy never received a head wound to begin with. America had been a bad boy. Our slave masters demanded a psychodrama yet another alchemical ceremony which promised to mold the collective consciousness into the image of the new world order. Everything went down without a hitch. In one stunning moment, Kennedy took his exit from the world stage, but perhaps not forever. And here we have a picture of Bush, laughing his ass off. What's so funny, Mr. President? Probably just got off the phone with John. Somebody told the other a dirty joke. The official narrative claims George H.W. Bush, the Skull and Bones alumni who would ascend from director of the CIA to vice president under Reagan and finally commander-in-chief of the corporate United States, was not yet a member of Central Intelligence when Kennedy was shot. But we know that's all part of the PSYOP. George H.W. Bush, codenamed Timberwolf, was indeed in Dallas on that November day, a fully functioning member of the CIA. But we can do better than Dallas. There is unlikely a person alive who cannot remember where they were on November 22nd, 1963. Go ask your grandmother. When asked, George H.W. Bush never could remember. How strange. This probably has something to do with the fact that he was photographed in front of the book depository building within hours or minutes of Lee Harvey Oswald's arrest, and the thought of an alibi had never occurred to him. No, this is not proof that George H.W. Bush had a hand in Kennedy's assassination. I stress assassination. Bush did not ascend through the ranks of secret societies and intelligence to the seat of vice president and then the presidency by killing presidents. He did so by becoming the sorcerer's apprentice and finally the Wizard of Oz. Timberwolf had a hand in the illusion. The future director of the CIA made Kennedy go away. But the thing about the Disappearing Act is, while it is true that people prefer the illusion over the sleight of hand, 
What they ultimately show up for is the reappearing trick. And more than anything, they want to be fooled by it. I want you to imagine in your head President John F. Kennedy. Can you see him? Good. Now I want you to envision President Jimmy Carter. Line them up side by side. Perhaps Kennedy really was a two-term president after all.